You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Good evening, my fellow citizens. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Upon receiving the first preliminary... 55 years ago, in October of 1962, mankind found itself on the precipice of a nuclear confrontation between the world's two superpowers, as the United States and the USSR faced off over the Soviets' decision to place nuclear missiles in Cuba, just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States. With tensions running high, the Kennedy White House and Khrushchev's Kremlin worked feverishly to try and avert a truly catastrophic outcome. In the White House, at the epicenter of the escalating drama, was a young Cornell University economics professor. Uh, If I can put it bluntly, we didn't talk about thousands or hundreds of thousands of fatalities. We talked about megadeaths, meaning millions or more. And we were calculating 40 million, 60 million, 80 million. This young man had been handpicked to join Defence Secretary Robert McNamara's so-called whiz kids as they sought to simultaneously find a solution to the crisis and calculate how, if the unthinkable were to happen, to conduct a full-scale nuclear war. I mean, it was a matter of days, and then it became a matter of hours. I mean, I think it narrowed down to five or six hours at one point. That's pretty tight. These new weapons are not in your interest. They contribute nothing to your peace and well-being. They can only undermine it. With time running out, the entire world was transfixed on the decisions being made by a group of men and women numbering in the dozens which would affect the lives of billions. That whiz kid is now 82 years old, but still involved at the highest level in geopolitics, and with tensions on the Korean Peninsula echoing a series of events we all hoped would be consigned to the history books forever, we talked to him to find out what was happening in the White House and the Pentagon in those tense weeks in October 1962. And we'll try to get a sense of how the current tensions between the United States and North Korea are different, or... Frighteningly, perhaps, the same. This week, on Adventures in Finance, Dr. Harold Malmgren. No one can foresee precisely 
what course it will take, or what course or casualties will be incurred. Also this week, joining me in the studio in person is Luke Grumman, the founder and president of Forest for the Trees, for our Things I Got Wrong segment. And Luke and I are going to pick over the bones of a mistake he made in his dim and distant past and figure out what he learned from it. I'm Grant Williams, and this is Adventures in Finance. Today is October the 12th, 2017, and welcome to episode 37 of Adventures in Finance. To my right, as always, is my faithful and trusted producer, James. James, how are you? I'm doing well. It's, it's funny, you know, I always refer to my pet dog as faithful, and I just kind of got the impression from the way you looked at me there. You might think that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> now, obviously, before we get into anything, the most important thing of the week is a Twitter followers update. Where are we at? Well, Grant, I'm up to 93. 93? Only seven more for 100. That's uh, that's pretty good going in a couple of weeks. Yes. So, so anybody out there, if there's seven of you that would like to uh, throw a dog a bone and follow James at James AIF. Mm-mm. At AIF James. See, we, how do you not even know this? At James AIF. No, at AIF James. No, but at James AIF has got thousands of followers now. I've, <laughs> I've been plugging him for weeks. Oh, God. <laughs> Now, this week we have a real treat for you. With everything that's going on on the Korean Peninsula and the escalating tensions in that part of the world, uh, we're very fortunate to have with us Harold Malmgren. Harold's been uh, a senior advisor to four presidents, uh, Johnson, Nixon, Kennedy and Ford, and has spent more time in the White House, certainly anybody I know. But what makes him most relevant to this week's conversation is the fact that he was actually in the room when the decisions were being made around the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962, which was the last time the world, uh, I guess, got this close to any kind of nuclear confrontation. So it's my pleasure to be able to welcome to Adventures in Finance, Harold Malgram. Harold, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, Every time you and I get the chance to sit down, I always walk away feeling that much smarter. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, It's always fun to talk with you and explore things that not everybody has thought about before. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, whole, the whole point of our discussion today is to, is to talk about um, the, the current situation on the Korean Peninsula. But the reason I think it's going to be fascinating for people to, to get the chance to explore your thoughts on that is that you were in the room when uh, the world was on the brink of something similar uh, 55 years ago, uh, when the Cuban Missile Crisis was at its peak. Um, so p- perhaps for those, of you, uh, for those of the audience who aren't familiar with your background, perhaps you could give us a little bit of how you ended up being in that room and who was in there with you. Yeah, well, this was in the time of JFK, and uh, when he came to Washington, he brought a number of deans of colleges and and bright young people from the major universities, the the head of the NSC uh, and the key players in the Pentagon uh, were laced with younger people who brought fresh thinking new perspectives, not to tell the the people who've been there there's a better way so much as to ask questions, open minds. It was that kind of uh, opening up of the thinking without pushing it aside, within, not trying to destroy it Trump-like, but to uh, energize everybody, re-energize. You must remember that was after the Eisenhower administration, which slowly went to sleep. Yeah. I mean, the bureaucracy 
spent less and less time at the office and more and more time at long uh, three or four martini lunches. <laughs> That's exactly. So it, it was a new period, and I happened to be an academic, but I knew all of these academics at Harvard, Yale, MIT. So uh, McGeorge Bundy, the NSC director, called me and said, Hal, you're teaching, and that's great, but we want you to come to Washington. We've got some things we'd like you to do here. And so that's how I came. And I was put in the Pentagon as my first assignment, basically to be an aide to Secretary of Defense McNamara, but uh, used as a utility infielder playing different positions at the baseball game. And at the time of the crisis, I was assigned to the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a civilian, but in charge of evaluating, counting, and what that really gets to is targeting. What do you hit? How big is the damage? How many fatalities will there be? Uh, what are you trying to accomplish? And assessing what the Russians had and how they might use it. Part of the scenarios, a lot of it was counting. I mean, trying to match. Do we have more than they do, or can we apply it better? And to try to stir the military people to think about these things. So, so I was there, and suddenly this event happened. And they, the first thing I was told is, you got to uh, give up your office here and move down into the bowels of the Pentagon because our command center is quite far, quite that far down below. And um, so during the crisis, I was going to that place, which was the um, place where if you're going to make a decision, this is where this is where the buttons get pushed and the things start happening. So pretty exciting, pretty depressing, because as the tensions built up, it was clear that war was possible. And then a really interesting development. We, there had been planned a chain of command that would exist if, some, if Washington was hit. And a lot of the people who were supposed to uh, go to either Mount Weather or a couple of other places in Virginia or West Virginia uh, said, well, I'll go, but I got to take my wife and kids. And then they were told, no, you, you can't do that. And so and none of the cabinet officers or sub-cabinet officers who were appointed to do this went. And uh, the only people who went were maintenance people who were happy to go because they were going to be safe. And so this, the, the, that whole system of what do we do after the war starts collapsed before it started. But what I'm giving you is a sense that it, it was really felt that something was about to happen. Uh, so the decisions made in those few days were under that cloud that we're not dealing with theory here. We're trying to calculate at what time and what trigger. It's a little bit like watching the markets. You know, when will the markets tip yeah. in some direction or other? Right. But it, it wasn't just a matter of how much money you might win or lose. It was how many people will die. Were you, Harold, were you, while you were in this situation, was the mood one of, okay, prevent, uh, preventing something? Was it a case of, well, this is going to happen unless we do something to stop it? Or was this, was the mood more one of, okay, we've got a problem here and we may have to take action to sort it out? I think it was both. 
But the one, uh, let's say, saving grace, some sort of unusual aspect was that the Russian ambassador in Washington, uh, Dobrynin, he was a strange character. He wasn't just an ambassador. He was also a member of the Politburo in Moscow. And so he was, in effect, a top decision maker. So he could he could act as a, a communicator. He did not given much credit in history, but he himself was. Well, how do we stop this? Because it is going to happen if we don't do something fresh or different. Uh, so we had this one thing uh, that normally history, well, for example, history does, doesn't record the key role he played. So every scenario could be laid out for him, and he would say, ah, I can see a way we could slow that down in Moscow, or I can play that with the Minister of Defense. So it was helpful, but nonetheless, we were on the edge, and at one point, I, I was tasked with questions like, do we fire all missiles at once, or do we fire certain ones at, say, power plants, industries? ports, or do we aim at cities? Uh, if we aim at cities, how many cities in order to force political response at the other end to stop the damage? Or maybe if we fire a few, then wait and see. In that case, we have to negotiate with somebody at the other end. So maybe we hit various targets, but don't touch Moscow, because there has to be a, somebody there at the other end to negotiate right. with. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, it, seems, it seems like such a simple thing, but uh, it seems like such a simple... Well, the movies about the time, you know, Dr. Strangelove and all yeah. of these things where one button and everything goes. But <laughs> once you're faced with it, you have to start thinking, wait a minute, we know how to start it, but how do we stop it? Yeah. At some point, the damage is so bad, both sides will want to stop. So who do we talk to? And you know, what's the mechanism? What's the because communications would be disrupted. It's a really challenge. It's the kind of thinking that didn't go, did not go on when when the U.S. went into Iraq. Yes, they didn't think about all these things like if you take out Hussein, what then? Well, and it's interesting you say that because because again, that that's something that um, you, you I think people tend to instill this enormous sense of confidence into leaders at wartime um yes. and it sounds like the, the simple truth is you, know, you you guys are trying to figure it out the same way everybody else is you just have a little bit more information that's all yeah basically yes but trying to figure it out with more information but with less time than you would really like yeah i mean it was a matter of days and then it became a matter of hours I mean, I think it narrowed down to five or six hours at one point. Yeah, that's I mean, pretty tight. That's really tight. And I'm just wondering if, if for the for, for people listening who perhaps uh, don't know enough about the Cuban Missile Crisis, can, can you give us a sense of of that time pressure and what it what it felt like to be working under it with with such incredibly high stakes? Well, you had. Two decision points. Uh, there was the White House office with Bobby Kennedy and McNamara and uh, JFK and uh, Bundy, the NSC director, a handful of others, but in a small space. 
arguing with each other. And in the meantime, at the other, I was down in the bowels of the Pentagon. But since I was put there by uh, the NSC director, in effect, I was supposed to be a communications conduit between the political decision makers and the hardware people. So it was a, a kind of assignment. It, it wasn't, you know, against anybody. It was make sure the two the two different systems understand each other, and uh, the, pol the political guys understand how close they are, how much how much uh, threat there is. And at the other end, make sure that the political, the even military people, just don't don't decide. Let's end the, the nervousness and punch the button. So uh, it was high tension. Um, I knew the players at both ends. Uh, I was put there by the players in the White House. So so it was a unique thing, and I was pretty young. I mean, I was. How did I get there? I was as a student. I was. I don't know, call a wonder boy or, you know, next generation uh, figurehead or something. Anyway, uh, it happened. I've never been full of myself, so I didn't really understand at the time that how large the role was. But I was trusted. That feeling of, of both ends, the military who get impatient and, and feel frustrated and want to bring conclusions and the political people who were desperately trying to think of ways to dissuade, deter, discourage, or negotiate. Now, uh, we the, the White House did open negotiations directly with Moscow about if they stopped, we would then uh, withdraw medium-range missiles that we had located in Turkey and a few other places in Europe. And that was that small concession was agreed. It was easy because the medium-range missiles we had were already obsolete, so we were thinking about taking them out. But we needed something face-saving. And then there was the issue of they they wanted to send some ships in. We wanted to block all ships coming in. We said we'd blow up any ships that came to the uh, to the blockade line. And the, then at the last, really last minutes, uh, the, the Russians, instead of engaging our blockade, turned around and started back. That was the critical moment. But you can see how leading up to this, a lot of talking going back and forth. Is there a way to save face for the Soviet Union leader who's going to be who's at risk of being called a wuss? Uh, by his own people, is there a way to save face in Washington if we give some things up? Uh, all of this had to be done in a fairly tight time frame. Uh, people can read the book, but to get the full flavor, you had to actually be there and understand that this was not just jibber-jabber. It was uh, what we decided from one minute to the next made a big difference. Yeah. So, so uh, as a... As an outsider, when you look at situations like this, when tensions arise, you can't help uh, but get the feeling that you've got two groups in the room, and you've alluded to this just now, but you've got the military who are putting pressure on to because they want a military outcome. They want, I guess, they want to use all their toys, or they want they just want something done, be decisive, get it over with. You've got the politicians who will talk forever if they think that will make a difference. How much pressure 
do the military put on the politicians in this in this kind of an environment? It's a good question. And what I can say flatly is the military becomes in a moment of decision like that divided just the way Washington is. You've got people who say, do it now. And people say, wait, wait, let's let's focus on deterrence. They they were divided. The, the head of the Strategic Air Command wanted to, you know, give his boys a, a, some experience. Uh, he'd been, you know, they every day they had to go up to the point of no return and come back. He said it was a morale problem. He'd like to cut them loose once. I mean, you can see it in Dr. Strangelove and a couple of the other movies at the time, um, that thinking. The discussions became similar at both sides because the moment of you're going to do something or not, you began to get how do we avoid it? Is there a way to discourage it? Can we bribe the other side in some sense with something they want? Yeah. Uh, so all of this took place. And I think the Kennedy people were really good at avoiding impulsive responses to everything. Everything was measured gradual. And Dobrynin was uh, a genius between the two countries. Well, if you think about it, an ambassador who rose to the top of the, to the pinnacle of his own government must be a genius because anybody who does that in any country is pretty clever because rising to the top, you've got sharks all around you who are ready to take you down. So, so Harold, what, what, you going back to that time of being back in that room, who who were the leaders? Who who was it that stepped up and made a difference? You know, was it was it uh, John Kennedy? Was it Bobby? Was it the military? Who who when you cast your mind back were the figures who stood out as being the guys that in that quiet group actually led and made all the decisions? Yeah, well, I think it was a mix, and, and McGeorge Bundy, the head of the NSC, who had been dean at Harvard College. Uh, and had made a remark when he came to Washington to a news journalist. The news journalist asked, how, how is it you were in that academic atmosphere and now you're plunged into the most critical national security post in Washington that take, that's dealing with the entire world, you know, and the powerful people in Washington. How, how did you do that? And he said, well, after managing the egos in Harvard College, this is duck soup. <laughs> so... I think he he was that kind of person who knew how to manage egos. Uh, he didn't know the substance of this, but he knew how to play everybody, uh, encourage people, uh, seduce them, uh, embarrass them, whatever was needed. Uh, so I would say his role was large. But uh, when I think back, McNamara played a large role in the White House meetings, but he had in the Pentagon several people who had large influence on him. And they were basically people who had come out of either his past experience at Ford Motors, or they were people, well, from the Harvard Law School or the College of Arts, who were cerebral. They were, you know, they, they would say, consider this, or have you thought through that, or have you thought through the consequences? So that, you know, it's hard to identify because it was a continuous discussion. But what it was all about was that we got to slow this down if we can, refine it, and try to figure out a way to, to discourage both sides. 
which actually finally succeeded. Because the, out, the alternative was horrendously bad. There was no outcome that did not involve, uh, if I can put it bluntly, mega deaths. We didn't talk about thousands or hundreds of thousands of fatalities. We talked about mega deaths, meaning millions or more. Sure. And we were calculating 40 million, 60 million, 80 million, wow. uh, large numbers. Wow. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and we were also talking about those are the initial fatalities, but of course the radiation effects, the effect on agriculture and water and everything else long-term, it meant, you know, whatever number we came up with, double or triple it for the long-term effects. So we were talking about the end of just about everything in North America and and the vast area covered by the Soviet Union. This was on a scale that's hard to understand. I was asked in a Senate hearing at a later time about about it, and he said, how did you calculate it? I said, well, <laughs> the smallest number I could use was megadeths. And he, was, he, he couldn't believe what I was talking about until I really spelled it out. Of course, he said I had no idea. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, amazingly, somehow, after the world got to the very brink of a nuclear catastrophe, you and the people around you in the Pentagon managed to de-escalate that uh, situation to the to the point where you know, the world kind of eked its way through that. But but switching uh, topics to today, you know, we find ourselves um, maybe not quite as as close as you were back then in 1962, but certainly the chance of a similar kind of uh, confrontation is is increasing and has been increasing, although it's gone quiet in the last couple of weeks. You know, there's one thing you said in there about. Um, the, the way the Pentagon and the White House uh, acted during that time that, that really struck me. And that was you, you, you talked about this measured response and the fact that nobody there was impulsive. And, and it seems to me that uh, whether it's, it's staged or it's real, the, the, the impression you get coming out of the White House as an outsider is one of impulsiveness and is certainly not one of measured response. I mean, do you see it like that? And if that's the case, what does that do to the chances of, of a miscalculation on either side? Well, what the world can see and probably what is felt in both Washington and Pyongyang uh, is that we are subject to two unpredictable and possibly impulsive characters who would do something nobody else would do. So that creates apprehension. I think it creates apprehension for those who focus on it in in the U.S. and probably those in the region like South Korea and Japan, Australia, and others. But uh, you know, it's often the press talks about the president, can he get his fingers on the codes? Well, the answer is, it's not that simple. I mean, it doesn't just, he can't just launch doing that. Um, There are other people who have to concur and take parallel action. Uh, For example, the Secretary of Defense. Maybe the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, although he would defer to the Secretary of Defense. Now, who do we have in the sec- as Secretary of Defense? We have a military guy named General Mattis. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is General Dunford. 
And the chief of staff of the White House at this time is General Kelly. Three Marines that have been together in battle, covered each other's behinds, uh, grown up in the administrations of various presidents, worked with Congress. And these three guys are buddies. Uh, I happen to know them. Uh, just not so long ago, three, about four years ago, I was asked by the commandant of the Marine Corps at that time to join him with all his three and four stars, uh, generals from all over the world who were in a mandatory retreat. And then they asked me to walk through uh, with them everything from the economic outlook and how it affects security worldwide to hotspots around the world, uh, different capabilities, different different political decision-making systems. So, uh, and then, you know, you drink beer at night, you sit around and talk with these guys. So I know all these generals, particularly these three. And I have to say, these are three very solid guys who have, who think with vision. Uh, now, you can get military people at the top who want to do the right thing, but then you have to scratch your head and say, well, is it the right thing for themselves, the right thing for a buddy, or is it the right thing for the nation? Uh, and a lot of these military people are like business people. They, they're thinking about themselves first uh, and their buddies second, and then they get around to the company. Uh, but these three, these are dedicated warriors who are nation first. Now, Mattis is, of the three, he's known as the mad dog, and that's simply because you don't go against him, you don't confront him, because as someone said to me about his style of pushing back, he said, he doesn't push back. He grabs you by the shoulders, throws you on the floor, jumps on your chest, and explains how it's going to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you've got a different configuration of military leadership, which is an automatic curb on impulsiveness uh, at the White House. I mean, the president could decide something and order the, the Pentagon to do it, and I'm sure the response would be, well, that's an interesting idea, but we couldn't carry it out, sir, without a study. We would have to figure out how many people we would need and what forces, and it's going to take time. They wouldn't say no. They would just simply absorb it in the machinery of government as a project to be considered. Right. And there's nothing he could do about that. He needs that machinery. So I'm not so worried about impulsiveness. There's always some way of, con of limiting the scope for thoughtless emotional action. Our system especially has all these fail-safes built into it. It's not just the constitutional balance of powers. It's just the operation of the machinery of government has many fail-safes uh, fail built in. So I know some of these players, and I especially know these three Marines. I, you know, I can't say they're lifetime buddies, but I've spent time with them, talked with them about all of these kinds of issues for a couple of days, I have great respect for how they think. So I'm not completely remote from what's going on. So as, so as you look at the situation, you, you and I last saw each other in Orlando in May when we sat and watched George Friedman yes. talking about this. And, and at right. the time, you know, he, 
his view, and he was very overt and, and uh, very clear about it, he thought there would be a conflict with North Korea this year. Um, and I kind of looked at you and, and you said, you know, he, he may be right, but I don't think it's this year. Um, and, and that seems to have kind of quietened down now, uh, which perhaps we should be more worried about the fact that it's something's happening quietly now, I don't know. But when you look at the situation there and, and you look at the ebbs and flows of, of that uh, dynamic between uh, Washington and Pyongyang, what do you see now? What, what do you think we should be looking for and what do you think the, the outcome looks like it may be at the moment? Well, there are. let, let me do this in steps. Uh, first, there is the question of how big a military threat or let's say uh, how big a threat to the U.S. interests, how big a threat to the U.S. homeland. Because Kim Jong-un, and I never can quite pronounce it correctly, uh, has threatened things like striking the U.S. homeland and burning the White House and, and such things. Now, it sounds preposterous, but in 1962, during the crisis, one of the tasks I had was to look at what the Soviet military might be thinking about that would be asymmetric or unexpected. And mix of intelligence and technical work that the military had done watching the tests of the Soviets, I concluded that the Russians were trying to develop a means of lofting into orbit a mid-sized nuclear weapon that would cross Antarctica and come from the south and be exploded over the center of the U.S. with the intent to... Now, uh, let me stop and just say, why from the south? Because all our radars and sensors were pointing north towards Russia. Right. So they thought, maybe we could get this weapon to come from behind, and we would not know it until too late. It sounds like a high-tech Maginot line. Yeah. Uh, you know, low-orbit sat uh, satellite... Uh, laden nuclear weapon and exploded quite high so that the electromagnetic pulse, the diameter or the radius, let's say, would be line of sight. So if it's high enough and it could see the east and west coast, it would cover the whole U.S. It would mobilize command and control, all communications, all power grids, it would take out all the entire electrical system. It's pretty pretty uh, bad because the consequence would be leaving the U.S. without distribution, without means of moving water, power. In those days, that would be serious. Not as serious as today because we don't, you know, we we can't live for seconds without using a smartphone or right. doing a selfie. But in those days, it was important. No, the Russians did not succeed in developing or refining the technology, but they were hard at work. Why do I bring this up? Because I have found that over the last year or so, uh, I, I kept pushing to find out why does the North Korean leader keep talking about devastating the whole homeland of the U.S.? Why does he use terms like that, burning the White House? And the conclusion was, after a lot of exchange with people who had thought bits and pieces about this, I concluded that they had somehow gone back 
in their technology development to this idea and wanted to replicate it. And then more recently, because I pursued this discussion with people, uh, let's say, in, in the decision-making roles here and in some of the Asian countries, it, it has become apparent that the Russian, some Russians, whether it's the Russian government or Russian scientists left over and paid well, or the sons and daughters of Russian scientists, there is a team that is assisting North Korea to develop this exact same technology. Now, they haven't mastered it yet, but it is conceivable that they could master it within, say, two years, in my judgment. There's a book called One Second After, a novel about an EMP exploded by a rogue nation over the U.S. And if people haven't read it, they should read it because it's pretty scary. But it's, it's an accurate description of what happens if an EMP works. Now, keeping that in mind, I think there is a time horizon where the U.S. itself will be subject to an extreme threat. And the North Korean leader is has shown keen interest in how to extort other countries and how to use hostages. Uh, well, with, North, with South Korea, the hostages, who are they, are the South Korean population plus a couple of hundred thousand American citizens plus uh, our 30,000 or so uniformed personnel. Uh, but if he could hold hostage of a large part of the U.S. to something like that, he could play it in lots of ways. Uh, I'm not sure he really wants to go to war with the U.S., but I think he wants to uh, disable the U.S. responding to things that he does want to do. And I'm sure he would like to have the same technology available to threaten anybody else who got in his way, even China. So just let's put that out there as something he's aiming for. In the meantime, he's trying out different kinds of missiles. And then he he threatened Guam. Uh, he didn't say he would hit Guam. He said he would splash them down at a, at a distance from Guam, but to make a point. He's talked about exploding a hydrogen bomb over the Pacific, not to kill anybody, but to uh, send a message. Um, of course, it would send a lot of radiation around the world also, so that it wouldn't be damaged less. Now, if you're sitting in Washington, you're thinking about these things, and especially if you're thinking about his ultimate uh, ability to threaten the whole of the U.S. or large parts of it, then your thinking has to focus in on how long can we wait and that's where Washington is now in the, in the security discussions at the highest level. Some of the some of the tests that have gone up, you know, the New York Times reported, well, yes, they got a certain distance, but they didn't have a reentry vehicle, so it doesn't prove anything. Well, I read those kinds of reports and thought uh, they weren't necessarily trying to think about reentry. They were trying to think about exploding something up in the air. You know, and then friends of mine in the in that system, let's call it the defense security system, confirmed, oh, you're absolutely right, but nobody else thought about it, and we don't want to alarm the public. But yes, that's what they're trying to do, is something different. Now, what he has done, this Korean leader, has also 
placed our old-fashioned artillery all along the border. And if there is some kind of conflict, we can assume that all of that artillery, supposedly 12,000 pieces, which is a lot, will, by default, start firing at Seoul. A lot of this artillery is actually located in smaller space, more close to each other, so easy for us to target and blow up. But they would certainly be able to get, around, get off a few rounds, so there would be a lot of deaths, including Americans and probably American uniformed personnel. Um, so how do you plan the options? The president has, uh, and Mattis have said we have a few options. Sometimes they've said we have four or five in the, mean, in the meantime, separately from all of this, and the press and media in the U.S. has barely noticed, Mattis and General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and an array of admirals and generals went to Beijing about three weeks ago. Now, to understand the meaning of that, it's, it's a very significant event, because the two militaries essentially— Met for what reason? Because they want to avoid a mutual conflict. So one of the topics is, how do we avoid getting into trouble with each other about North Korea? Another would be, how do we avoid your planes getting too close to our planes and having an accident, as happened a few years back when one of our surveillance aircrafts was struck by a Chinese aircraft, and our surveillance aircraft fell on Hainan, the the island where most of the military development takes place in China. It's not. It's quite natural. Militaries like to have communication systems to warn each other in ways that avoid accidents. Uh, with all this hardware up there, it's easy to have accidents, particularly since there are pilots who have some discretion, and uh, there's always somebody who wants to sh show off to the others. So that meeting took place. Um, now, she met with—she asked for a private meeting with Dunford, the chairman of our Joint Chiefs, and he had photographs taken of he and our chairman of the Joint Chiefs alone, without staff in the picture. And those pictures were all over Chinese news. It was Xi's way of saying to the Chinese people, don't worry about accidents with, with the U.S. I'm in charge here, and he's in charge there with the machine. So it, it was a subtle way of saying, don't worry about Trump. This is under control. Yeah. And it wasn't much publicized here because it wasn't convenient to do so. Uh, it suggested rivalries of power. But it wasn't on the U.S. side intended. It was Xi's idea. And moreover, Xi initiated a position that the press has failed to understand. He, he said he warned the, the North Korean leader that if North Korea initiates conflict— China will be neutral and stay out of the way and let the U.S. do what it wishes. On the other hand, if the U.S. initiates conflict, China would help defend North Korea. In effect, he put a cap on both, saying, if you both sides do nothing, I'll be cool. But if you get in the scrap, 
it's going to be bad for one of you. And, you know, whether that was a really an American idea or a Chinese idea, it's the reality of the understanding between the two militaries. So that gives me confidence that there's no eagerness to let the North Koreans go very far with this. Second thing is, it's been in the news for quite a while that Chinese weren't doing much. But actually, if you look carefully, the Chinese central bank ordered the Chinese banks to stop doing business with the North Koreans. Uh, businesses inside China that deal with North Korea were asked to shut down or, or shift their attention. There are things going on. The, the Chinese have lined up tanks facing towards North Korea at the border, probably to contain the population in case it decides to flee North Korea and come to China, which they don't want, but also as a warning, a visible warning to the North Korean leader. These things are going on. And so I'm, you know, I'm not so nervous about the imminent problems. But let's, let's just stop and consider, at the time of in 1962, we were thinking about uh, within hours we could be in an exchange of weapons and there would be megadeaths, uh, in the tens of megadeaths, you know, numbers, as I said, 20, 40, 60, 80 million, big numbers. Um, now, if you read any of the military-type uh, journals, you'll find that the U.S. military has adopted the new doctrine called high-intensity warfare. What does it mean? It means using modern computers and, and artificial intelligence, trying to do to the military complex what high-frequency trading did to trading in stocks and eventually trading in almost every kind of asset that's tradable and finally dominating the world foreign exchange market. In other words, transacting in milliseconds. So if we had a crisis, it wouldn't be as leisurely as in 1962. Once you start, I think the intention would be with North Korea it would not be like going to Afghanistan, fanning out troops uh, over a wide area of desert or, or deserted villages. It, it would be, how do we hit all of their potential weapons all at the same time so as to minimize the fatalities that could be imposed by North Korea? And if we could show that we could do that in a big enough way, it would be a strong deterrent for Kim Jong-un not to do it because it would be self-destruction. So that, that's the thinking is focused on speed. Now, what do I mean by speed? Well, if we went to military conflict five years ago, we would have to start with bombing all the air defenses over several days and then downgrading the power supplies, the fuel supplies, so that by the time you get to conflict, you've got a weak adversary. But now we would probably let loose attacks by air, sea, and land on everything all at once. But we have something new that is not well understood in the press, and that's what we call the F-35, which the press keeps treating as a new fighter aircraft. But basically, it's a weapons platform which has a built-in AWACS, if I could simplify it. 
and is able to control air, sea, and land weaponry and fire at will all of it. And we've already dispatched a bunch of these F-35s in that area. Are they just expensive machines? The answer is each one substitutes for many of the traditional aircraft. So it's just the press doesn't like it because each item costs a lot. But this is all about integration. So where we are is if and when there is a conflict, it's going to happen really fast. The team that's sitting in Washington and the, and the military team sitting in Beijing, they are, let's say, in a mode of how do we make sure bad things don't happen, at least for now. Not, the Chinese definitely don't want a direct conflict with the U.S. Uh, they even discuss things about how do we, let's say, deal with our ships sailing by your your positions in the South China Sea. Well, let's let's just do this in a way that's not provocative. So I'm not too worried about these two systems and and the reality that she, the leader, is personally involved with this and put his premature on it. Now, in Washington, there are people who say, well, we have a kind of military coup going on. Well, I think that's not correct. I think these military guys are not interested in political power. But this morning, Secretary of State Tillerson made an unusual address trying to kill a lot of rumors in the news. But he said one interesting thing publicly. He said specifically, as for General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, I talk with him virtually every day. The interaction between Tillerson and the three Marines is really close. They they think of him as their kind of guy, strong, decisive, but thoughtful, measured. So I I think he's part of this process, but he's not the person kind of person who talks about it all the time. So we have boiled down a system that has everything under control for the time being. We have impulsive North Korea. We have a president who tends to be impulsive, but often self-corrects, if you give him a few minutes or a few days. China's not ready for an all-out conflict, and, and I don't think would be in for at least another 20 years. They are building for the future, but for now, but I, if I would not underestimate the willingness of the militaries of China and the United States uh, to interact in a positive way. I think they both see that as <clears throat> mutually compatible way of behaving. Now, in, if we go back to Tiananmen Square, George Bush 41 terminated diplomatic relations with China. And almost everybody's forgotten. But at the same time, same day, he ordered the commander-in-chief of uh, the U.S. Pacific Forces to engage the PLA, the Chinese military, in direct discussions to develop a series of channels to conduct diplomatic relations. Now, it, that prospered. That actually went well. It, it eased a lot of problems, and it also allowed the Chinese military to veto a lot of ambitious political ideas of the Politburo. 
the Chinese were like ours. They weren't that eager to be aggressive and confrontational. And under Obama, it, there was no connection. I mean, he didn't like our military. He didn't like anybody else's military. The relationship with the military was appalling. Everybody held at arm's length. <clears throat> and, freak, and military people coming to the White House were often told not to wear their uniforms, but to come in civvies. But now, uh, Mattis and some of his colleagues, knowing that history, seized on the moment and saw this power structure she had created to put the Central Military Committee at, at the center, and they had meetings. And there was almost no press. But to me, it was a, a move of diplomatic genius to engage an entire decision system at the other end in a discussion of how do, the, how do we avoid having accidents, conflict, unnecessary troubles. So, in my view, if Mattis would now sit down with the defense minister of Russia, who is also that kind of personality, uh, a lot of problems would get solved on that side of the machinery of government without the use of a lot of ideologically oriented politicians in Congress. The world isn't exactly what everybody thinks it is. <laughs> and, it, and it's looking as though it's not going to be the way we expect it to be for quite some time. Harold, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to have that uh, with me. But it's time, I'm afraid, to send you up to Mars. Now, uh, we've sent all our guests up this season, and we've been very kind in giving them a book, a CD, a DVD, a piece of technology, and a nicely needle-pointed quote uh, to hang on the inside wall of their rocket. So I'm going to jump straight in with you, if I may, and why don't we have your book first? Which book would you take with you to Mars, and why? There is a great book that few have read by Albert O. Hirschman called The Passions and the Interests, published in 1977. I think it's the most important book ever written on the evolution of capitalism, how it came to be, how it, how it formed, why it's, it's really an issue of political economy uh, than, than just economy. And uh, it's something you can read over and over again and learn something from it. It's a man, the man who wrote it should have had at least one Nobel Prize, if not several. Well, I'm, I'm amazed. I've, I've never heard of this book. I'm, I'm frantically writing this down now because I'm going to have to go out and buy this. I, I will be you the know, first. You read it, you'll prosper. I, the reason I tripped across it, I was Tom Schelling was my mentor, and I was his research assistant when he wrote his first book on game theory. And he said, I want you to meet this man, uh, uh, Albert Hirschman. And I met him and spent several days and became friends. And I thought, this is the biggest thinker I had met. And he, he remains in my mind as one of the great thinkers of the last century. And that he wrote two books, well, several books, but there was another one called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. If you're in public service do you, and you see something bad, do you leave? Uh, do you stick it out for loyalty? Um, do you stick it out because you can think you can change things? It, but, the, but the bigger book was this, The Passions and the Interests. Well, I, I'm going to make sure that I go and read this, and we will pack it away for you uh, in your rocket ship. Now, 
The next one, this is the one that always fascinates me, music. Uh, I'm a big music fan, and so learning which, uh, which piece right. of music people take with them is always interesting to me. So, so which, which piece of music would be your, your accompaniment? It will surprise you, but uh, Vivaldi is the Four Seasons, and the reason is that I listened to it when I read the book that followed The Hobbit, uh, oh, Lord, Lord of the Lord Rings, Rings. Uh, for the first time. And and I, re I read it in Oxford and listened to that music throughout. And so it, every time I hear it, I'm thinking through all the different pages and volumes of the Lord of the Rings. See, I, I'm obviously far more shallow than you. I always think of uh, trading places when I hear the four seasons. That, that's just yeah. me. I guess that's, that, yeah, well, that's a generational <laughs> thing. <laughs> Okay, well, it stuck with me all these years. Well, uh, well, I, this brings us nicely on to your choice of movie. And which movie are you going to take up? The maybe it's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. No, I guess I guess it goes back to um, uh, all the King's Men, um, which was you know a, a political movie. But it just it, I, somehow, even though I was primarily. Uh, a scientist and an economist, I, I got really interested in political development, so that that stuck with me. All right. Well, we, we we're sending you to Mars to get away from politics, but if you want to take it with you, then who are we to stop uh, you? I think <laughs> politics is theater, endless theater. Oh, yeah, that's for sure, especially nowadays. Um, okay, one <laughs> piece of technology. What's that going to be? Ah. Uh, and uh, I thought about that, and I thought, well, the power might go out if you're out that long. So I began at the beginning of the beginning of serious education with a slide rule. And I think I'd take that because it doesn't require power, but you can do magnificent things with it. I love it. That's by far the best answer we've had to date, by far. Um, okay, and finally, uh, a quote, an inspirational quote that you would like lovingly needle-pointed by our star producer, James, to hang in your rocket ship. Yes, well, when I moved or was placed in the middle of power politics early in my career, the most important piece of advice I got, when, especially when encountering other people of power, was very simple. Don't get in a pissing match with a skunk. <laughs> Again, a fantastic answer. And, and I would say certainly the pithiest we've had to date so far. Uh, <laughs> I, I, will, I will make sure that James spells that correctly because uh, we, the, the, the advice of avoiding a passing match with a skunk is probably not going to be any good to anybody. <laughs> It's a good life's lesson for everybody. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Harold, thank you so much. It's, been, it's just been wonderful getting the chance to talk to you. And, uh, and now we know what you're going to have with you on your way to Mars. <laughs> okay. And what I'm not taking. <laughs> and what you're not taking. Exactly right. Thanks again. Okay. Have a nice day. All right. Now we come to our Things I Got Wrong segment. And I'm delighted to say that we actually have someone who's screwed up with us this week. Luke <laughs> Roman in person. It happens to be in the Cayman Islands. So we're, we're going to make you we're going to make you work while you're here. Luke Roman, Forest for the Trees. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Grant. I'm excited to be here. It's uh, lovely to be on the island. It's you've, you've brought some fantastic weather with you. Uh, and we're now having having seen how beautiful it is outside. We're going to bring the tone down inside and talk to you about <laughs> about a mistake you've made in your career. So uh, for, for the people that aren't familiar with you, just give us a quick background of, uh, of who you are and what you do. 
Sure. So I spent over 20 years on Wall Street about four years ago, uh, left uh, a position with a, a regional brokerage firm in the Midwest, uh, hung out my own shingle as forest for the trees. And really what we try to do is aggregate a large amount of uh, uh, disparate uh, publicly available data in a unique manner, trying to identify economic bottlenecks. Uh, it's been our experience over our uh, time on, on the street that uh, excess returns accrue to economic bottlenecks. And so we're just trying to find where uh, you know, basically something's happening or is setting up to happen and identify that for our customers. Yeah, I, I can I can attest when you talk about putting all that together in a unique way, you absolutely do do that. Um, Thank you. Now, so in those 20-odd years, uh, yeah, I know from my own experience, uh, you know, I'm, I, I was averaging about 20 mistakes a year in the early days and I've got that down <laughs> to about 19 now, 30 years later. So. But, uh, but, but, but let's talk about, about something you got wrong. You know, there's, there's, you know, as I said to you before, before we came on, when you when you, you mentioned, hey, would you like to do this? And and I started with a list, and the list got very long very quickly, <laughs> which is, it's uh, it's humbling, but it's also a good way to learn, right? You learn from your mistakes, not necessarily as as much as as what you get right. And so there's, I guess, probably two things I think uh, when I look back that really jumped out at me over the past you know twenty years, and particularly in the last ten years that I look back and go, ugh, if I could do that <laughs> yeah. again, and and so. You know, the first one was, uh, so back in late 2008, 2009, early 2009, was really the first time, you know, I just started buying gold. Yeah. I was buying it in a large amount, you know, 700 $800, $900 an ounce, put on a really big position. Of course, at the time, we were known for bottoms-up fundamental research. Other guys on the desk were laughing at me and making right. fun of me, and, and, and I, uh, I kept on doing, you know, doing what I was doing. Well, but so... You know, fast forward two, three years, it gets to be third quarter of 2011, gold's racing towards 2000 bucks an ounce. Uh, and, and I'll never forget, you know, the people that were laughing at me were now coming over to congratulate me. Uh, and I remember calling my wife at the time going, I think I need to hedge this position because it was a big position relative to, yeah, to sure. my net worth. And uh, just because I had the conviction of what was happening. And uh, I said, I think I need to hedge this. It just, it just feels wrong. But, you know, you have, you know, Venezuela had just asked for their gold back. And you started hearing these rumblings of the new Shanghai Gold Exchange and some big volumes of, of Chinese imports coming through, you know, coming through out of Hong Kong. Those were really starting to take off. The U.S. had just been downgraded for the first time ever. So it was one of these things where you were kind of thinking, gosh. Everything is Everything's your yeah. way. I'm getting congratulated. And for me, I'm such a contrarian. My first instinct is not, wow, I'm so smart. But I immediately am thinking, oh, this is going to end badly. And, of course, we all know what's happened since. And so I think, you know, long-winded uh, way of, of providing the context for what I think I really got wrong was I didn't understand as uh, well as I should have, particularly for the size of position I was carrying, um, the structure uh, of the gold market in terms of the degree of, of paper leverage yep. inherent in it. And, and uh, had I done that, I would have, I think, definitely been much more aggressive about hedging off because I didn't want to get rid of the position. I understanding sort of what was happening in sort of the longer term or thinking I understood what was happening in the longer term. But um, basically, as, as physical collaterals pull out of a, a highly levered uh, system where the highly levered paper system sets the price, the price crashes when when yeah. you, it's, it was basically a run on the bank and so of course um i was wrong for the right reason there was a lot of demand for gold the demand for physical was so quick it or so great it, it began breaking that market and i didn't understand that and i got that wrong you know it's such a great point because um oftentimes 
we have an idea about an asset that we think is going to move in a certain direction. And, and to your point, you can be right for the wrong reasons. But too rarely people accept that they were right and they don't bother to understand why. Like the, 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 the catalyst that they were expecting didn't happen, but they were still right. And instead of sitting back and saying, okay, I now need to rethink and understand why I'm right because it wasn't the reason I thought it was going to be right. And people don't. They're happy to take the win. And if you don't then understand what's driving that market in a particular direction, you can get caught flat-footed really fast like you did back in 2011. That's, that's exactly right. And I, you know, to me, it's almost akin to you know, watching film if you're a professional athlete, whether it's yeah. a baseball player or a football player, where you, know, you might win a game, you might make a great pass, but, but sooner or later, if you're not watching the film of what you did right, what you did wrong, what your opponent does, how they might play you, 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 know, you can see the guys that watch a lot of film, you know, regardless of, and, and to me, it's, it's the investment equivalent of, of you know, watching film on your opponents, watching film on yourself. So you, so otherwise, you're just never going to get better. Yeah, it's so true. And that's, that's a big reason why we started doing this segment, because people tend not to be asked about the things they got wrong, which is, which is interesting because as you and I were talking um, before we started recording, everybody we've approached has been delighted to talk about the mistakes they've made because, you know, within the context of a successful career... Yeah, they're almost humorous when you look back on them and you understand what you got wrong. It's, but it's an incredibly valuable way for people to learn from other people's mistakes that they don't make them themselves. Now, you, you, you talked about two, so I, I, we're going to get two for the price of one here. So <laughs> definitely the, price, the second one. Uh, so the second one was, was you know, so, so you know, it was leading up to the 2007-2008 crisis and it was you know, summer 2007. Again, I was back in my old seat. I was in a, a, a sales position. Uh, again, we're doing deep in the weeds, bottoms up fundamental research. And we were starting to, one of the things we tracked was um, we had a number of relationships with uh, bad debt collectors. Mm-hmm. And so it was charged off credit card debt. And so forever, uh, the price of charged off credit card debt would drop by 1% to 2% a month. So the credit cards would, you know, they'd issue the credit, consumers wouldn't pay it. And then, you know, they would sell that on a secondary market. And the price of that secondary market, basically, it's basically a call option, right? Yeah. So you're, 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 uh, you know, that price would fall by 1% to 2% per month. And then all of a sudden, summer of, of 2007, guys call us and go, hey, price of this debt, charge off debt. So it's gone from falling one to two. Now it's falling five. Now it's falling 10% a month. You know, so you're getting into the late third quarter, and it's falling 10 15% a month. Hmm, that's kind of odd. So then I, I have that piece of information in my brain, and it's interesting. I, you know, signs maybe the consumer's you know, weakening, so we file that away. So then I have uh, um, I'm out to drinks with, with, a, with a guy in Cleveland, actually. And it was funny. Uh, uh, National City Bank had a big subprime mortgage business at that point. Uh, I think it was First Franklin was the uh, was the business. And the weirdest thing, you know, fill in the blank, big broker, you know, and we in New York just called us, said they don't want any more of our production. I said, what? He goes, yeah, they, that's, as of today, they've stopped. And so I kind of start putting these two together. It's like, oh, my gosh. So we asked them, the, the, the charged-off credit card guys, the bad debt collectors, hey, how do, you, how do you collect your bad debt? And they go, oh, well, it's, it's easy. We, we buy it, and then we go to um, the, uh, the uh, creditor, or the debtor, excuse me, and we you know, help them file for a, right. a, a second on their house. And uh, usually it's a subprime second. Yep. And then we get paid, they get paid, we lower their bill. It's a win-win-win. And so I said, are, are you starting to see the secondary market shut down? They're like, yeah, all of a sudden it just... And so now I have these two data points. And then like a week later, uh, one of my colleagues on the sales desk comes back from lunch with a friend of his. And it was a, a different big Midwestern bank. 
And the guy was, it was, you know, fairly up on the commercial real estate side. And, and he just makes a comment in passing at lunch. He goes, yeah, weirdest thing. He, he says he thinks his commercial book might be 35% overvalued. And I remember turning and looking at my buddy going, well, we stop. What did you just say to me? And he goes, oh, yeah, he just he thinks a commercial book might be 35% of our value. And so I took this A, or this B, and these C data points. And I'll never forget, I immediately called A. I started putting together, you know, talking to customers like, hey, I'm hearing this stuff. And I, you know, I, I go to my own financial advisor. I'm like, I want to be all cash. And I'd never done that before. He was very puzzled. And, of course, it was sort of a traditional asset allocation. Yeah. I said, no, all cash. Just trust me on this. You know, I call my dad. I'll never forget. I'm like, Dad, you've got to go to cash. I'm telling you, you don't understand. And so long-winded way of saying, I went to cash. I stayed in cash for 18 months. I, I went back into the markets when, when, you know, it was one of these times I actually got something really right. I went back in uh, March of 09 when they did the, the big QE, right, where I just was like, oh, my gosh, they're, they're printing money, I think. And, right. and, but to me, I look back at that and I go, like, I knew I had it. It yep. was like a once-in-a-generation thing. And it's, you know, it's something where, you ha- when, when you have a once in a when the money's in the corner, you know the right thing to do is like stop what you're doing, take a week, take two weeks, take a month, take six months, and like really figure it out, and then figure out what's the best levered way. Because it was, yep. you just had to go to the corner, pick up the money, and I and I, I, I sort of, and I'm a conservative person by nature, so I, I sort of did, but I mean. It, it, I didn't do it in the way as, as much as I could. And I look back at that and go, Ugh. well, you know, it's, it's interesting because that, that natural human reaction is I need to protect myself, which is what you did. Right. Right. But it's funny the the, the greats, you know, the Druckenmillers of this world, yep. the Tudor Joneses of this world, they do what you're talking about. They, That's right. they, they get, they get huddled, they get protected. And then they go, okay, how do I make a lot of money out of this? That's and right. When you watch the big short, that's what those guys did. Right. They, That's right. They were wrong for a while, but they like, you, yeah, they knew they had it. Yep. But they they went aggressively after it, and, that, and that's. But in fairness to you, that's easy to do with other people's money than it is with your own, because obviously the stakes are that much higher. If you, if you get it wrong when you're working for a hedge fund, you lose your job, um, and if you do it wrong for your family, you, you're living with your parents again. So sure. it's understandable. But it's funny when these things come along. How how do you you know looking back? How do you know when you know? Right? How do you know? Okay, I'm right about this. It's time to press the bet. You know, it's not any one thing. It, it's, to me, I think, and I think this speaks to the greats, and I think what the greats do well and what I think, you know, anyone that wants to be great should try to do is is everyone wants to equal weight all the data points, and they want to have all the data, and they want to have, I've got it 80% and the data, look at the data. You know, and if you read the history books, if I remember right, you know, the thing that really got Druckenmiller to press when he when we broke the pound with Soros, was you know, it was some statement by a German finance minister in the journal. It's like everyone can read it. There yep. it is, and he saw. And so there's an element of this. I think you have to have the context. I think it's one of these things where you sort of dig and you dig and you dig and you dig. And if you haven't done all the digging and all the all the work ahead of time, then when that sort of that that big juicy pitch comes down the middle of the plate. Maybe you don't swing the way you did. And, and that was, I think, really the case for me back then was if I really understood, like I understood it was bad, but I really didn't understand how bad until, you know, a yeah. year later uh, uh, where you kind of go, you know, I know there's leverage in the system. I know there's a lot of leverage, but I was thinking it was, you know, I was, it was cute, right? I thought, hey, they're levered 10 times. They're levered 20 times. This isn't good, right? 
if I had understood they're levered a hundred times, like then yeah. you go, oh my God, they're and done and they're done fast. And that's what I think, you know, where my, the Michael Burries of the world or, or uh, some of those other guys in the big show, they knew yeah. the context before it happened so that they knew you could put a timeline on it. And if you can put a timeline on it, then you can understand the capital management side of, of you know, that these guys do so well, right? Where you don't, you really press your bet when you really, you know, yeah. can sort of play bigger than a bread basket in terms of when this <laughs> right. thing could happen and, and you're comfortable with that, right? Yeah, it's, it's great. Look, th- look, thanks so much for that. It's, it's, there's so many lessons in there. Um, and I think given the state we're in now in terms of global markets where there's so much complacency out there, uh, there's an awful lot there in what you said. I think when people take it away and, and digest it, they're going to find it's going to be very, very useful to have in their heads in the next, <laughs> in the next sort of six months. Uh, Luke, b- before you go, just uh, give people um, some clues about where to find you because I, I can vouch personally for your work. It's, it's exceptional. So the more people Thank that you. we can get out there to, to follow it, the better. So uh, where can they find you? Absolutely. So uh, yeah, anyone interested, you can go to our website, which is www.ff. TT, Frank, Frank, Tom, Tom, dash, LLC.com. There's a couple samples on there. And then uh, I'm also on uh, Twitter. Uh, I have a fairly active feed, and that is at Luke Groman, uh, G-R-O-M-E-N, all one word. And uh, um, uh, always happy to, uh, to follow up with people as, as they're interested. Fantastic. Thanks again, buddy. Great to see you. Thank you very much for having me in. It's great seeing you, too. Okay, well, sadly, that wraps up another episode of Adventures in Finance. My thanks to my guests, Luke Groman and Harold Malmgren. And after that wonderful journey back in time to the Cuban Missile Crisis with Harold, uh, Real Vision subscribers are in for a treat tomorrow as we air the first part of our new five-part documentary series, World on the Brink, which features Dee Smith, who regular listeners will remember from our cybersecurity uh, episode, which is episode 20 of Adventures in Finance. And this five-part documentary uh, explores the current global geopolitical situation, uh, giving a lot of insider views, expert opinion on global affairs, economics, intelligence, culture, psychology, and the state of the military. So please watch out for that. You can visit realvision.com slash worldonthebrink to find out more, and that will air tomorrow. Next week, we'll be back with a very special episode of Adventures in Finance on the 30th anniversary of Black Monday, the 1987 crash when the Dow lost 22% in a single day. I remember that all too painfully, but fortunately, uh, we've enlisted an all-star lineup of guests to come back and reminisce, tell their stories about what happened on that day, uh, and give us a sense of how they see the present stacking up against that very memorable day in the past. So don't miss that. Before we leave you, the usual disclaimer, uh, anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and, of course, the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops carefully and trade responsibly. If you have an interesting question about this week's show, then we would love to hear it. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. As always, if you enjoyed what you've heard this week, then please subscribe to us on iTunes and do leave us those reviews. They are incredibly important, he said, not really understanding why. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and of course, podcast episodes, then please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And should you be so inclined, you can scour Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Real Vision and you'll find us there too. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Drumroll, please. And you can follow me at AIF James. That's James AIF. AIF James. AIF James. All right, fine. Let's get that right. That's it from us. We will see you back here next week. Thank you so much for listening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.